Well, it's my great privilege to introduce Bob Phillips. Many of you will know Bob, so Bob has many, many hats. Today he's here as Director of Urban Imprints, or Design and Planning Consultancy, based in Macclesfield. Do lots and lots of stuff, one of his uh, senior designers and planners here, Joe. Bob is also the Chair of the Northwest RTPI, and, and interestingly, Bob is a lecturer, part-time lecturer here as a practitioner in urban design. So the urban design program that we talk about later, the yearbook that you'll see, has come from many years of Bob toiling away and pushing for urban design to become a thing here. And the urban design program has a lot to fight Bob for. And for its current existence and its current success, which hopefully you'll see some of the work here in the next copy break. So Bob's going to talk about 250 years of innovation in Manchester. He's the only person we can find who's alive for most of those years. <laughs> <laughs> but not all. Sorry, that's Winston. Yes. <laughs> Others can fill in the blanks. <laughs> no, I will pass over to Bob without further ado. And, uh, <coughs> thank you. Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I tend to walk around when I'm doing this, so if you can't hear me shout, because I am away from the microphone. Um, but this. Uh, who laughed there? <laughs> right. Um, 250 years at Manchester. Um, when we started planning this conference, the idea behind it was that we gave a little bit of context to Manchester. A lot of the calls that are happening on Saturday, a lot of the speakers are regionally based and are obviously going to be using a lot of the context which happened in Manchester. And it was interesting, some of our speakers this morning saying that when we're looking at how we're planning, designing, uh, responding to health, happiness, harmony in the future, we're actually taking a retrospective look as well. And I thought it was probably worth us having a think and a little bit of a look at why Manchester had done things differently. And in fact, there's a lot of firsts in Manchester over the last 250 years. A lot of reasons why Manchester has been at the cutting edge of those three H's that we've talked about before. What I'm going to talk about here, there is no way in 20 minutes I could tell you an entire history of Manchester for the last 250 years. Impossible. So what I've chosen here is a few choices some of my personal favourites, as it were. Um, this, is like, this is like to pick up the pot with Paul Cappuccini on Radio 2 or Saturday. Okay, so we're going to go through this quite quickly. My colleague Joe is going to keep moving on the slide every 45 seconds so I don't go on too much. So we may have some sort of issue here between us as she moves them on too quickly. But we'll see how it goes. For those of you that know Manchester well, now is the opportunity for a postprandial nap. Okay, here we go. First slide, Jack. Okay, this is probably how most of you think of Manchester. Probably thinking about it, I love the way that that car's parked. I think that's a great addition to that image that I've taken. Uh, but this is how most of you think of Manchester. This is how Manchester is seen most of the world, usually with the Coronation Street music over the back of it. Okay, but a lot of Manchester, a lot of the housing in Manchester, and a lot of its history is based around it being the post-industrial city as it is today. It was the first industrial city. We've got the growth of massive growth, massive urbanisation, and a lot of the housing stock, certainly up until the 1950s, was on red brick terrace house. And actually, a lot of what Manchester's been doing is how we deal with those neighbourhoods, how we deal with those communities, how we respond to that with what we've been doing housing and I'm moving on, I'm okay. <laughs> Alternatively, what we did originally replace it with was no different to anywhere else. We replaced it with that. The Radburn State, 
for the high-rise buildings, the modular 1950s, 1960s designs that we're all fairly familiar with. But what that did is that left Manchester with a fairly strange legacy. A history of the first industrial city, a history of pre-war housing, and perhaps potentially quite poor quality post-war housing. Neighbourhoods like that, they're not a million miles from some of the other images that we'll look at today. You can go on, Joe. So, I thought I'd start here. This is St Anne's Square. Anybody familiar with St Anne's Square? Very good. Well, St Anne's Square, of course, most of the buildings around it, Georgian, Victorian, <coughs> and post that period as well. But actually, its streetscape is based on the medieval streets in and around Manchester that had existed for hundreds of years before that. This was the beginning of Manchester. This is probably what we might call downtown historic Manchester. Okay? And again, what happened here was this was where finance and business and this whole industrial city started to grow from. Move on, Joe. Here we are again in just in that central area. This is Princess Street. And again here, these large red brick mills that are very difficult. Most of these are warehouses rather than the mills themselves in this particular area. Again, it's part of that functionality thing. And you'll see that across the city centre. The mills are around the outskirts, the warehouses are in the centre of town. Interesting point about this one is, of course, you notice how all the buildings are very certain height. And originally when I came to Manchester, so 20 years ago, I thought that was the result of some sort of city ordinance or some sort of thing. No, there's a high pressure water main that runs down the middle of that road. And the um, hydraulic lifts that ran off that high pressure water main, that was the height that you could get the lifts to go to, and no higher than that. So all of the buildings there ended up at a certain set height because of something there. Talking of industry, here we are with the world's first canal basin. Manchester, of course, with the first modern canal, let's exclude the Romans, they did lots of things, they were Italian. Um, but also, <laughs> but of course, here in Manchester, we have the world's first canal, and that is the Bridgewater Canal. Obviously, built to transport coal from coal fields into the industrial heart of Manchester. And here we are in Castlefield in this basin, all of the original uh, mill warehousing and indeed the canal warehousing here now being changed into variety of mixed use, redeveloped, renewed, new buildings side by side in. But actually canals, for those of you that remember the Melanie Sykes advert, very much part of what Manchester's all about. That communication, that transport. And here we are going to put into the other side, that rather unassuming looking building is Liverpool Road Station, which is the first passenger railway station in the world as well. Okay, so Manchester holds two very, very important transport gems within its history. But the railways and the canals, as forms of communication, are very much part of why Manchester is growing the way it has done, and some of the issues and some of the solutions that it's come from. The, the sort of bridge at the background is the old sort court there, and for those of you that know it, has caused great controversy locally. Uh, where we balanced in Manchester, much to public opinion, whether we should link for the first time the two major railway stations of Victoria and Piccadilly by a railway link, or cut off from the main line the world's first railway station. Now, the transport infrastructure was present heritage, but again, some of the tensions that we're dealing with. Joe's moved me on. We've now come into Hancoats, 
This is goodness, isn't it? It's keeping me time. Um, but this particular picture is an area called the Need for Strength. Uh, originally, when built, it was called Sanitary Strength. They dropped the S and the RY at the end of it. But again, part of work just before the turn of the 20th century about trying to lift the quality of life for people living in Manchester. So, indoor wash basins, sewers that worked underground, shared toilets in the courtyard, every modern convenience, and to the back of it there, the Victoria Apartments. Again, trying to build a better quality of housing for the people in Manchester. Now, for those of you that got on the Ancoats tour, I am sure that you will see those two streets there. But quite interesting there, the cutting edge of our health and well-being here in Manchester. This also around similar time, this is Victoria Park. <coughs> and one of the first areas of, uh, we now talk a lot in Manchester, a lot in the UK, about self-build. About build a series of plots, people will be able to build their own houses. Well, this is exactly what it was 125 years ago. One particular local entrepreneur set out an area of Lancashire fields, set out plots and allowed people to build their houses on them. Build the quality of the dream that they wanted to have. You can probably just see the blue plaque there, which was the home of the Panther sisters, of course, who have much fame and fortune, or misfortune as one may wish to, wish to uh, recall their history. But indeed, very much part of what we're doing in Manchester, this movement towards something that we're doing now that seems very, very exciting, but we were doing it 125 years ago in Manchester. I mentioned earlier that the railways, of course, have had much of an impact on the way that Manchester's grown and developed. This is West Sidsbury. In fact, it's the Ballbrook Conservation Area. Anybody live in Ballbrook? No? Do you? <laughs> but needless, needless to say, um, it wasn't just, we talked about Metro London, London, it wasn't just Metro London that was happening in and around London with the Metropolitan Line. The South Cheshire Lines were doing exactly the same here in Manchester, South Manchester, a series of uh, neighbourhoods like this. This whole idea of offering the better quality of line, the lower density, the big gardens, we might want to rethink some of that thinking after what we've talked about this morning. But needless to say, this was all part of these people chasing health, harmony, happiness through the use of the railways, through this idea of transport-orientated development. But back in the city centre again, of course, we've got some of our most spectacular, I think, historic buildings. We've got the Central Library, which, for those of you that know it, great big circular library for the public good, for the public benefit. The town hall and the town hall extension here, and this huge civic spaces that were around them. Albert Square, which you can't see because it's behind, St Peter's Square here in front, both of which have history, which I'm not going to go into now because I've got only 32 seconds left. But nevertheless, this agglomeration of historic civic buildings and those particular squares has been a constant tension for Manchester <coughs> over the years. Most recently, um, there's the, you can't just see it, but there's a sort of grey area between the town hall extension and the, uh, the, li the library there, and that's Library Walk, which the City Council have recently closed off and privatised a piece of public ground. The people in Manchester were incensed! One of my, uh, one of my employees the week before I came to work for me was on the front of the MEN with a placard. I had to sort of calm it down a little bit after that. But again, even outside of it, this here is, uh, this is Hayes Kingsway. Uh, this is the neighbourhood of Burnage, 
centres at those stops and built some houses around them. And it worked really well until somebody started ripping up railway lines and tram lines. And again, we're talking about the density of public transport stops and how that's important to the focus of a community. Barrage <laughs> is just starting to improve itself. It's just starting to come out of quite a slum. Uh, as a retail centre, as a local centre, it's starting to improve. We're now going to go into the post-war period. If I told you that that was the first post-war garden suburb designed by Barry Parker, you'd probably all go, no, it isn't. It looks fairly uninspiring. But yes, indeed, it is. Withenshaw Garden Suburb, of course, built to the Garden City principles, built with a post-war mentality in mind. We might want to think a little bit about governance. Built until very recently without any public transport facility. We have recently, with Ensure, introduced a new tram system that now connects it to the airport and to the city centre. But for a great many years, the only way you could get out of Withenshaw was if you went down the motorway. And so it became one of those places that, with the greatest intentions, was designed to be the Letchworth and the Wellingarden city of the north, and ended up being nothing more than an isolated housing estate and full of municipal housing. Back to the future, back to the city centre again. The two buildings up close that you can see are the two buildings of what was the CIS Tower, which was in 1957 when it was built, I think, the largest building in Europe. And indeed, the Co-op Cooperative Society Central Hall was their name. For those of you that know it, the home of the Co-op, the home of the Cooperative Society in Manchester, and they showed it in the 1950s and 60s with those buildings. But more recently, they've taken on something that's quite innovative in towns and cities. They've looked at their asset there and said, actually, we need to invest in this place to make the most out of our asset. It makes perfect sense. They owe a lot of people a lot of money, including me as one of their bankers. <laughs> but, nevertheless, new, new facilities there, the new building that you can see there, which some of you will indeed see on the tour of Ankhouse. David's here at the back, so I shan't say too much about this, but this is Hume. Hume, for those of you that know it, is one of those areas that was developed three times in about 100 years. The first two attempts were probably not brilliant. The third attempt was based on the ideas that we now seem to know and understand. The rediscovery of the street, the creation of communities, the creation of high streets, the creation of public transport, serving these particular communities. The development's now nearly 20 years old, but it led to some important things. The Manchester Design Guide, which you'll probably all have come across, one of the first borough-wide design guides that tried to raise the quality of design in the area and the quality of the people living and working there. But it also led to a lot of people using this and working from this. And you can probably track all sorts of things, even, even sort of pastiche developments like Pambury back to finding their roots in the Hume and the redevelopment of Hume and the creation of the urban blocks that that, that introduced. For those of you that like your evening economy, the building that is replaced and sits there on the right is what was the Hacienda. 
Yes. And I am not old enough, despite my looks, to remember that. <laughs> but apparently it was a jump in place. <laughs> Nevertheless, um, it's now being replaced. A lot of the work here was done in the late 1990s by the Central Manchester Development Corporation, one of the last development corporations in the country. But a lot of that was focused on bringing office, bringing economy, and bringing a part of living for the town. And actually, something that you'll see in Manchester a lot, which is high-rise flats, or lots of flats, and lots of grade-A offices, is actually something that started here in about the late 90s. And that seems to have permeated itself through quite a lot of it. But at the same time as we were doing that at one end of the town, this end of the town, which is the Northern Quarter, all of the young people have been to the Northern Quarter, yes. All of the old people have also been to the Northern Quarter, yes. Northern Quarter's great, okay? I really like it, I'm gonna take you know, you can shoot me down later. But it's one of these areas that's grown organically. Okay? There was no plan for it. It's cheap by jail, restaurants and apartments and pubs and clubs and bars and places of work. And it's done its own thing. This is unplanned. This is history in the making. Buildings have come and gone. It's a very organic process. The problem Manchester is grappling with now is should we write a policy to protect that diversity? Or should we just actually let it go on on its own accord? But of course what Manchester in the modern times is probably most famous for is its rebuilding after the IRA bomb in the mid-1990s. And this is uh, the Martha Schwartz Design Exchange Square. Um, and a lot of the buildings and townscape was re rekindled after that. And again, the original indoor master plan, and it was a really good master plan, and I think it's probably one of the reasons why that area of town was so successful, in my opinion, others may apply. But again, it was part of making sure that we had a new series of streets and spaces, that it then connected what had been a large monoculture shopping centre back into the town again introducing evening economy, introducing all of these ideas about creating well-being and a place to live and work, open spaces, public squares. But of course we were still left with lots of these areas outside of town that were not potentially as effective as that. This is Grove Village, which is about 200 metres that way, which was an original Radburn estate. Okay? Walk-up flats, basinettes, you can see some of that. But what the City Council did with a series of partners, with a series of, is start to break that down. Using those principles that they've used so successfully in here, starting to create new urban blocks, selective demolition. And this is the Great Village, which is now almost pretty much complete. But they've been doing that across the whole of their area in Manchester. City Council, working with public and private to try and create neighbourhoods again. It's not really it but it's better than it was. And actually, I think it's something that's worked quite well in Manchester and has had a certain degree of take-up. In East Manchester, of course, they've put in old sites and built entire new neighbourhoods. This is a particular neighbourhood where they've started to embrace some innovative design. I wish, in Manchester's rainy climate, they had not used render. But, nevertheless, um, it is an area which is very popular, very high sought after, and people have been moving back into East Manchester, typically where the market was dead. This particular development is quite, quite innovative, flat pack on the back of a lorry, 
come up, build them very quickly. Um, it's also <coughs> by a series of streets named after famous architects. This is um, Frank Lloyd Wright Way. He's spinning his. Anyway, but of course, closer to the city centre, of course, we've also got a whole series of innovative, different housing projects, different housing ideas. Um, the buildings on the right there are the fat houses, for those of you that have come across them before. Uh, a community design project which was delivering some new inner urban housing on a former Radburn estate. Um, to the left there, the first part, or one of the earlier parts, of the sort of townhouses that were coming along with the um, New Islington development. And I know some of you might be going to see that on Saturday if you're indeed going on those doors. But again, this idea that Manchester stayed to get a high rise at the back. And that high rise there is in Ancoats, where we were looking at earlier today. And here we are in the middle of Ancoats. I think the interesting story about this is that Ancoats, of course, being the cradle of the industrial revolution, having a series of listed mills, having this particular environment which had that, Manchester made a decision not to go for world heritage status on it. And that was probably a good thing for those of you that remember Dresden, the fact that they lost it because of their bridge. Indeed, Manchester would have been restricted considerably in what they did with Ancoats. Ancoats there, new against old, um, hodgepodge of levels, of sites, of scales, but actually creating quite an interesting landscape. You can all go and have a look at it yourself. But again, as a result of decisions that have been made, as a result of the fact that we want to bring people into the city again, that we want people living and working in a neighbourhood again, Ancoats has done it reasonably well. It's preserved the old against the new, and it's working quite effectively. In other areas, wholesale renewal of the town, we've gone for the steel approach. This is um, Ian Simpson's scheme for <coughs> spinning fields. Yes, sorry, apologise for that. But again, different, entirely different market it's looking at. Again, lots of inner city living, lots of living and working together. But unlike Ancoats, which has got public and publicly owned space, entirely to private owned public crowd. And again, the tension that everybody's been seeing that, we've seen it in Cabot Square, we've been in Bristol, we've seen it in the schemes in London, that whole sort of tension about whether public space should be privatised has started to rear its head in Manchester. And of course, perhaps Manchester's best known high building, I don't mind it actually, I think it's a great beacon for Manchester, the Beetham Tower. You see it on every road in, you see it on every railway line coming into the town. This is Manchester, ground. Oh, drop the mic, sort of thing. But, <laughs> nevertheless, Manchester is really, really struggling with what it's going to do now it's starting to go high. It doesn't have a tall building strategy. Every scheme is done in its own merits, and the outcry that has come when Gary Devon decided to put two tall buildings next to the town hall <coughs> caused public outrage, including Historic England, going off the wagon. <laughs> So actually, how Manchester is going to deal with this increased density, how it's going to deal with creating places, creating places and keeping that community with high buildings, is going to be difficult. Because I fear that this is what we might end up with. The three towers at the back, all monoculture student apartments, all fairly universally ugly, 
series of low to medium rise apartments. There's no relationship there with that canal, one of Manchester's greatest assets. Is this the legacy that we want for Manchester? I think some of the debates that we're going to have this week over the next couple of days are going to be exploring that. So hopefully I've kept to my 45 seconds a slide. And that's me. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen.